I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Gather around the campfire, everyone. It's time for... The The Connor and Smith Show! Tell us a story, Stephen. Well, this one is really fascinating. Um, This was another listener suggestion that we cover the Black Aggie um, statue in Washington, D.C., which led me down a big rabbit hole of research um, and that made us kind of learn who uh, Henry and Marion Adams were. Um, so let's start there with Marion Adams. This is the memorial to Marion Adams. The first statue, which is called, not the Black Aggie, but the first statue is called Grief. And it is located in the Rock Creek uh, Memorial Cemetery. Now, wait, was it was it really called Grief? Or was that kind of what became no, Grief? it was called Grief. Because I thought I had read that he didn't like the word Grief because of the, the proper name was blah, 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 blah. They had thought about a, a more elaborate name, but the name that stuck with the public and everyone else was Grief. Right. Um, so, who are we grieving over? Marion Hooper Adams, also known as Clover, as her nickname. Um... She was born in 1843 and died December 6, 1885. She was an American socialite, active society hostess, arbiter of Washington, D.C., and an accomplished amateur photographer. Clover, who's been cited as inspiration for writer Henry James's Daisy Miller from 1878 and The Portrait of a Lady in 1881, was married to writer Henry Adams. So let's break that down. Um, They become friends. We'll get there. But they're friends with Henry James. Henry James wrote The Turn of the Screw. For those of you who do not know, Matthew and I wrote a musical based on Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. You can find info on that on our website, but it's really just an interesting historical side note. So Clover's married to uh, writer Henry Adams. Um, So we'll get to her death, but after her death, he commissioned the famous Adams Memorial which features an enigmatic androgynous bronze sculpture by Augustus St. Gaudens to stand at the site of her and then his grave. So after Clover's death, Adams destroyed all the letters that she had ever written to him and rarely, if ever, spoke of her in public. She was also omitted from his The Education of Henry Adams, this book that he won a Pulitzer Prize for after his death. Um, however, in letters to her friend Anne Palmer Fell, he opened up about his 12 years of happiness with Clover and his difficulty in dealing with her loss. So who was she, really? Well, she was born in Boston, Massachusetts, the third and youngest child of Robert William Hooper and Ellen H. Sturgis. Um, when she was five years old, her mother, a trans- transcendentalist poet, died and she became very close to her physician father all right so loss of mother early on that often changes somebody's life entirely look at madonna okay clover hooper volunteered for the sanitary commission during the civil war in 1866 she traveled abroad where she is said to have met fellow bostonian henry adams in london on june 27 1872 adams and she were married in boston Um, Now let's talk about what she liked to do the most. In 1883, Clover became active in photography and was was one of the earliest portrait photographers. Familiarizing herself with the chemicals, she did all her own developing. Her work was widely admired 
although her husband apparently would not allow her to become professional and discouraged any publication of her photographs. Uh, one of the most famous of her photographs is her self-portrait here, which is her face is obscured by a hat. Um, she is carrying a dog. And it's interesting that she didn't want to show her face. It kind of maybe says that she was dealing with some issues of low self-esteem or did not want to be photographed for fear that her husband would not like it. I don't know. Sia does it because she just wants people to listen to her music. So oh, maybe, Sia, the recording artist. So maybe she just wanted people to see the... Yeah. Maybe. It's a fascinating photograph um, of a woman who is shrouded in mystery. So it's kind of fitting. Yeah. She knows her own brand. Um, so Clover and her husband hired architect H.H. H. Richardson and were in the process of having a new home built on Lafayette Square. Um, Clover documented the construction of the houses with her camera. Okay, so that's, that's kind of Clover before we get to Clover's end. Who was Henry Adams? Um, so Henry Brooks Adams, uh, born 1838 and died 1918, was an American historian, a member of the Adams political family descended from two U.S. presidents. As a young Harvard grad, he served as secretary to his father um, and Abraham Lincoln's ambassador to the United Kingdom. After the American Civil War, he became a photojournalist who entertained America's foremost intellectuals at his homes in Washington and Boston. During his lifetime, he was best known for the history of the United States of America during the administrations of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, a nine-volume work praise for its literary style, command of the documentary, evidence, and deep family knowledge of the period and its major fixtures. Um, his posthumously published memoir, The Education of Henry Adams, won the Pulitzer Prize and went on to be named by the Modern Library as the best English, English language, I can't speak today, English language nonfiction book of the 20th century. Um, no big, you know, good on ya. Uh, so, this is basically his career. On March 19, 1861, Abraham Lincoln appointed Charles Francis Adams Sr., uh, United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom. Henry accompanied his father to London as his private secretary. He also became the anonymous London correspondent for the New York Times. While in Britain, Adams was befriended by many noted men. Um, including Henry James. He worked to introduce the young Henry James to English society with the help of his closest and lifelong friend, Charles Mills Gaskell, and his wife, Lady Catherine, nay Wallop. So this was 1861-ish. Just for a frame of reference, Turn of the Screw came out in 1898. Um, not that Turn of the Screw was the first novel for Henry, it was later. Um, Anyway, back to Henry Adams. Uh, he published The Education of Henry Adams in 1907 in a small private edition for only selected friends. After he died, it was published. Um, it ranked first on the Modern Library's 1998 list of 100 best nonfiction books and was named the best book of the 20th century by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1919. Um... So, this is very interesting to me. 
Um, Adams was a member of an exclusive circle, a group of friends called the Five of Hearts, that consisted of Henry, his wife Clover, geologist and mountaineer Clarence King, John Hay, who was assistant to Lincoln and later Secretary of State, and Hay's wife, Clara. Um, so, let's see. Now, he and Clover, this was, you know, Mary and his wife, uh, they got married June 27th, 1872 in Massachusetts. Um, so, Clover committed suicide. Um, there's a lot of speculation and numerous theories have been given concerning the causes of Clover Adams' suicide. Her death has been attributed to depression over her father's death. Her suicide was also related to a family history of mental depression and suicide, a sense of frustration and lack of fulfillment as a cultured person and as a woman, and a feeling of intellectual inferiority over her husband's interest in and attention to another woman. We'll get there in just a second. The possibility of determining the validity of any or all of these causes was made more difficult by Henry Adams' destruction of most of Clover's letters and photos following her death. So not only her letters, but her photographs as well. His autobiography maintains a profound silence about his wife after her suicide. Adam's grief was profound and enduring. The event was life-shattering for Adams and profoundly altered the course of his life. Henry, his brother Charles Francis Adams, Clover's brother Edward, and her sister Ellen, with her husband Ephraim Gurney, were the attendees of a brief funeral service held on December 9, 1885 at the house on Lafayette Square. Internment services followed at Rock Creek Cemetery, but the actual burial was postponed until December 11th, 1885, because of the inclement weather. A few weeks later, Adams ordered a modest headstone as a temporary marker. Later, he commissioned a monument for her tomb from his friend, the sculptor Augustus St. Gaudin, who created a masterpiece for her memorial. Now, who was this other woman that we were talking about? Um, well, Henry Adams first met... Elizabeth Cameron in January 1881 at a reception in the drawing room of the house of John and Clara Hay. We'll get to John and Clara Hay in just a moment. Elizabeth was considered to be one of the most beautiful and intelligent women in the Washington area. Henry Adams initiated a correspondence with Lizzie on May 19, 1883, when her husband and she departed for Europe. That letter reflected his unhappiness with her departure and his longing for her return. It was the first of hundreds of letters to follow for the next 35 years, recording a passionate yet unconsummated relationship that we know of. On December 7, 1884, one year before Clover's suicide, one year before, Henry Adams wrote to Lizzie, I shall dedicate my next poem to you. I shall have you carved over the arch of my stone doorway. I shall publish your volume of extracts with your portrait on the title page. None of these methods can fully express the extent to which I am yours. It's one year before his wife's suicide. He writes that to another woman. Adam's wife, Clover, um, who had written a weekly letter to her father throughout her marriage, uh, never mentioned concerns or suspicions about Henry's relationship with Lizzie. Nothing in the letters of her family or circle of friends indicates her distrust or unhappiness with her husband in this matter. Indeed, after her death, Henry found a letter from Clover to her sister Ellen, which had not been posted. The survival of this letter was assured by its contents, which read, If I had one single point of character or goodness, I would stand on that and grow back to life. Henry is more patient and loving than words can express, 
God might envy him. He bears in hopes and despairs hour after hour. Henry is beyond all words, tenderer and better than all of you even. So Henry finds this letter that was unmailed. That seems convenient. Um, Anyway, on Christmas Day, 1885, a few weeks after Clover's suicide, Adam sent one of Clover's favorite pieces of jewelry to Cameron, to Lizzie, uh, requesting that she sometimes wear it to remind you of her. That's weird. That's just really odd. This was just a few weeks after his wife kills herself and he's sent away one of her favorite pieces of jewelry. It's, it's a little suspect, don't you think? He sent it to Lizzie? Yeah. So, was Lizzie and Grover really great friends? Clover. Clover? Oh Grover. God, Grover from the <laughs> Sorry. Sesame Street. Sorry, I was thinking about the beautiful grove we were at today, yeah, yeah, yeah. where it was all nested. No, they, they were not close. So that is weird. Uh, in 1912, Adams suffered a stroke, perhaps brought on by news of the sinking of the Titanic, for which he had returned tickets to Europe. Um, after the stroke, he, he was diminished, but continued to travel, write letters, and host dignitaries and friends at his Washington, D.C. home. He was supposed to go back to Europe on the Titanic once it came here? Oh my god, isn't that freaky? Yep. So they think he had a stroke from that. Um, Looks like he would have a stroke if you were on the Titanic coming here. Not le- not going back. Henry Adams died at age 80 in Washington, D.C. on March 27, 1918. He is interred beside his wife in Rock Creek Cemetery, Washington, D.C., under the statue Grief. Um, so we go back to the house that she killed herself in. Uh, the house that was... Um, his house and John Hay's house. So who's John Hay? Hey. So they're so close that they decide to put money together to build a double mansion, connected mansion in Lafayette Square, right across from the White House, like you do. Um, so let's read about John Hay a little bit. John Hay is fascinating as well. Uh, John Milton Hay, born 1838, died 1905, was an American statesman and official whose career in government stretched over almost half a century. Beginning as a private secretary to an assistant to Abraham Lincoln, Hay's highest office was United States Secretary of State under Presidents William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt. Hay was also an author and biographer and wrote poetry and other literature throughout much of his life. Hay worked for Lincoln's successful presidential campaign and became one of his private secretaries at the White House. Throughout the American Civil War, Hay was close to Lincoln and stood by his deathbed after the president was shot at Ford's Theater. Hay co-authored with George, uh, John George Nicolay a multi-volume biography of Lincoln that helped shape the assassinated president's historical Im- image. Um, And then later on in his career, President McKinley made John Hay ambassador to the United Kingdom. Hay became Secretary of State the following year. Hay served for almost seven years as Secretary of State under President McKinley and after McKinley's assassination under Teddy Roosevelt. Hay was responsible for negotiating the open door policy, which kept China open to trade with all countries on an equal basis with international powers and the Hay-Banaberia Treaty with the newly independent Republic of Panama, Hay also cleared the way for the building of the Panama Canal. Um, 
so then let's let's get a little just let's just a teeny bit more about John Hay because his proximity to this legendary historical events is really incredible. Um, so the assassination of Lincoln. Hay did not accompany the Lincolns to Ford's Theater on the night of April 14, 1865, but remained at the White House drinking whiskey with Robert Lincoln. When the two were informed that the president had been shot, they hastened to the Peterson House, a boarding house where the stricken Lincoln had been taken. Hay remained by Lincoln's dead deathbed through the night and was present when he died. At the moment of Lincoln's death, Hay observed a look of unspeakable peace came upon his worn features. He heard War Secretary Edwin Stanton's declaration, now he belongs to the ages. Lincoln's death was for Hay a personal loss, like the loss of a father. Lincoln's assassination erased any remaining doubts Hay had about Lincoln's greatness. In 1866, in a personal letter, Hay deemed Lincoln the greatest character since Christ. Um, Hay would spend the rest of his life mourning Lincoln. Wherever Hay went and whatever he did, Lincoln would always be watching. So then he marries... Uh, somebody in 1873. By 1873, Hay was wooing Clara Stone, daughter of Cleveland multimillionaire railroad and banking mogul Amasa Stone. The success of his suit, they married in 1874, made the salary attached to office a small consideration for the rest of his life. On December 29, 1876, a bridge over Ohio's Ashtabula River collapsed. The bridge had been built from metal cast at one of Stone's mills, and was carrying a train owned and operated by Stone's Lake Shore and Michigan Railway. 92 people died. It was the worst rail disaster in American history up to that point. Uh, the blame fell heavily on Amasa Stone, who departed for Europe to recuperate and left Hay in charge of his business. Amasa Stone committed suicide in 1883. His death left the Hayes very wealthy. In 1884, Hay and Adams commissioned architect Henry Robinson, uh, I'm sorry, Henry Hobson Richardson to construct houses for them on Washington's Lafayette Square. These were completed by 1886. Hay's house facing the White House and fronting on 16th Street was described even before completion as the finest house in Washington. So now we know about Henry Adams, John Hay, and... Um, now we need to get into uh, Clover Adams' suicide um, and the uh, the statue grief, and then the Black Aggie. Now sources here are the odd things I've seen um, podcast and blog. Um, this is pretty much the lowdown of how Black Aggie came to be part of this picture. Um, so let's see as almost as soon as the Adams Memorial was installed it became a tourist destination people flocked to this enigmatic statue that marked this enigmatic death as if at any minute at all bronze uh, uh, any, oh god I can't talk as if at any minute all that bronze pondering was going to yield answers to the thorny quandaries of life and death it was popular enough in fact that in 1907 about 15 years after its installation Somebody copied the statue completely. The Adams Memorial received that sincerest form of flattery at the behest of General Felix Agnes, a French-born Civil War veteran and newspaper publisher in Baltimore. 
it's a little fuzzy who the IP thief was. Like, maybe it was Agnes, maybe it was a sculptor, maybe it was a company that hired the sculptor. But somebody okayed the illegal copying of the Adams Memorial for General Agnes. The sculptor was Edward Pausch, who also created the death mask of William McKinley after the president's assassination in Buffalo. That's a tie-in back to John Hay. Agnes proudly erected Pausch's replica on his family plot in Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland, about 35 miles from Rock Creek Cemetery, where the Adams Memorial looms. Then things get accusatory. It's hard to parse the details, but it looks like the widow of St. Godin either publicly denounced the illegal copy or actually sued the general over it. The general, in turn, proclaimed his innocence and might have even sued the sculptor. Whatever the details, people got really mad about it. Even important sculptors like Chester David French weighed in on this travesty of dead weights. However, the, despite the transgressions in law and art and public opinion, Agnes was followed Oh, I'm sorry, Agnes was allowed to keep the knockoff up, and in 1925, he was buried under it. Except that, uh, basically, it's not in Drew Ridge Cemetery anymore. Um, this is where things get weird. In a bit of a karmic twist, while the Adams Memorial attracted artistic adulation, the Ag Agnes Memorial attracted creepy legends. The clone was dubbed the Black Aggie due to the color of the meta metal and the name on its pedestal. And in the process, given a gender, she was the dark shadow of the Adams Memorial, the Jekyll to its hide. Um, they say her eyes glowed red at night, and if you looked into them, you'd go blind. Uh, they say that if a pregnant woman walked through her shadow, that woman would miscarry. Um, they say that grass didn't grow around it. Uh, they said that she attracted ghosts from all corners of Druid Ridge like a paranormal beacon. Uh, they said that she was haunted by Clover Adams herself, which I don't think that's true, because we'll get to that. Um, so basically, so, mo perhaps the most traffic story of the Black Aggie was in 1962. Her arm went missing, was found in the car of a local sheet metal worker who claimed that the statue had ripped it off herself and handed it to him. Um, it, it, that's not true. That did not happen. You can't really hack Black Aggie's arm off. Uh, like the original sculpture, the arm is almost a solid piece with the statue itself. Um, so then basically the uh, things start to get, get really weird with the Black Aggie. So weird that the, in 1967, Druid Ridge Cemetery didn't want the statue around. There was too much trouble. They ended up donating it to the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian didn't want it. They put it in the basement. So nobody could look at it. Three years later, the museum um, would receive the authorized casting of the Adams Memorial, the first one, Grief. Um, while the Adams Memorial lorded itself in a gallery, Black Aggie moldered in the basement. And that's not the end. In 1987, the General Services Administration, which had the least interesting, although still important, mandate of all federal organizations, it's basically an entire governmental department dedicated to office management, asked for the statue because they thought it would make a great little garden gnome in the courtyard of the National Courts building. And that's where it is today, uh, 717 Madison Place, um, which is really close to where John Hay and Henry Adams built their house, right across the street, actually. Um, that place is now the Hay Adams Hotel. <clears throat> I need a breath. What do you think of all that so far? It's a lot, but it's interesting how it's so connected and it's so interesting that it's all over grieving and 
a headstone, just a sculpture, two yeah. sculptures. So the Hay Adams Hotel is a historic luxury hotel. It opened in 1928. Um, it's right across from the White House. It sits on the formal site, former site of the and of the connected 19th century mansions, which were owned by influential friends John Hay and Henry Adams, giving the hotel its name. Um, Lafayette Square and St. John's Episcopal Church, also known as the Church of the Presidents, are located right across the street. The hotel occupies the site where the 1885 homes of John Hay and Henry Adams once stood. Uh, in 1927, Washington de- developer Harry Wardman bought the property, raised the homes, and built a 138 residential hotel designed by architect Miran Mastrobian in the Italian Renaissance style. The hotel opened in 1928 as the Hay Adams House. In 1932, Wardman defaulted on the hotel's loans, and it was sold at public auction to the Washington Loan and Trust Company. Hotel magnate Julius Manger purchased the property in 1932 and renamed it the Manger Hay Adams Hotel. He also purchased the Annapolis and Hamilton Hotels in Washington. The Manger family sold the hotel to Washington developer Sheldon Magazine in 1973, and it was renamed the Hay Adams. Magazine sold the hotel to businessman Jeffrey Friedman and French hotelier Georges Moss in 1979 for approximately $15 million. Friedman and Moss sold the hotel to Los Angeles businessman David H. Murdoch in 1983 for $30 million. Murdoch sold the hotel to the Yu family, founders of Sanyo, in 1989 for $54 million. The Yu family sold the hotel to the B.F. Saul Company, a Washington real estate company, in 2006 for $100 million. So I don't know if you're keeping tabs, but it keeps on doubling in price. President, just fun tidbit, President Obama and his family stayed in the Hay Adams for a period of two weeks prior to his inauguration because the Blair House was occupied. The Hay Adams is said to be haunted by Henry Adams' beloved wife, Clover, Miriam Hooper Adams, who committed suicide on this site in 1885. Okay, let's dig into that. Last thing we're going to cover in this before we do some site visits. Um, so this is from uh, Ruthie Cooney. Um, the atmosphere at the Hay Adams Hotel remains one of hospitality and timelessness. Just ask the woman who supposedly made it her home for over 130 years. Tarnishing its long-held reputation of extravagance and exclusivity is the hotel's only unwanted guest, the esteemed ghost of the Hay Adams, Marion Hooper Adams. Mrs. Adams, who went by Clover, lived on the site of the Hay Adams Hotel in the mid-1800s. Beginning in 1884, she and her husband, Henry Adams, a descendant of two presidents and distinguished author, shared a parcel of land with their closest friends, John Hay, a U.S. ambassador and secretary of state, and his wife, Clara. By that point, the Adams had spent seven successful and social years in Washington, having moved from Boston in 1877. But after garnering popularity in the capital, Henry decided that their home should reflect their accrued elite status. So they partnered with friends, the Hayes, to build an impressive joint home. On the fourth floor of the Hay Adams Hotel, Clover has been reported to engage with hotel guests and employees alike, as she so often did during her life as a socialite. She makes her presence known by opening previously locked doors in unoccupied suites and the hum of radios flicking, flickering to life without provocation. Housekeepers have reported that she remains as social as ever, whispering their names in empty rooms, asking what do you want, and even rapping 
invisible arms around them in a gentle embrace. That would be scary. Creepy. Invisible hugs. No thanks. In 1872, at the age of 30, she married... Okay, we, we did a lot of this. But listen, this gets into a little bit more of the psychology. As both Mr. and Mrs. Adams were perfectionist, strong-willed, and brilliant, Henry has been called the American Voltaire, and Clover was dubbed a perfect Voltaire in petticoats by novelist Henry James... Their marriage was complicated by a sometimes toxic commitment to self-betterment. This is evident in some of Henry's comments, which su suggest he thought of Clover as unrefined. While they were engaged, Henry wrote to a friend, We shall improve her. According to a 1936 Washington Post review of Clover's then-recently published collection of letters, later in their marriage, Henry reportedly said that his wife has a very active and quick mind and has run over many things, but she knows nothing well. Still, Henry confessed that he was absurdly in love with Clover, and rightly so for all the accomplishments of the Renaissance woman, known above all for her wit. Clover was beautiful, athletic, fluent in French and Greek, an avid reader of classic literature, an equestrian, and a lover of art. Early in their marriage, while Henry taught history at Harvard, Clover discovered that her greatest strength was her charm, and she easily established an unrivaled social salon in Boston's Bay Bag. Upon their move to Washington, the popularity of her salon continued, with the Adams' home becoming a center for the intellectual, artistic, and political elite of the area. While Clover's world has was broadened as Henry had hoped, it seems Henry's intentions of improving his wife might have been too successful for his liking. Ever the perfect hostess, Clover would captivate five or six men in conversation at a single dinner party which she would often hold in her husband's absence, much to the delight of DC's gossips. Unfortunately, Clover's apparent magnetism strained her marriage. The Washington Post explained that there are indications that Henry was extremely possessive and resented a little this excessive popularity. When on one occasion she fled for a short visit to friends in New York, Henry met her at the station upon her return and announced that he was glad that she enjoyed her week, but that it's his last week alone. Whether overbearing or an extension of his devotion, this reaction suggests Henry might have regretted introducing Clover to the social arena outside of Boston. Some accounts suggest Clover became snobbish under Henry's tutelage, supposedly adopting a severity and criticality. Tutelage. Tutelage. Uh, supposedly adopting a severity and criticality that she had not had in her youth. Clover's transformation, for better or for worse, is captured by the letters she wrote. To her father, Robert Hooper, for almost 15 years, their correspondence became just uh, began just after her marriage to Henry and documented Clover's metamorphosis from Boston socialite to uh, the social arbiter of Washington. Even the switch of her signature from lovingly Clover to the formal Marion Adams conveys her early adoption of propriety. At the age of 39, Clover Adams picked up a camera for the first time and demonstrated her boundless versatility. Teaching herself the principles of photography, Clover wrote in September of 1883, I've gone in for photography and find it very absorbing. Clover mainly focused her talents on landscape and portrait photography when exploring her new hobby, creating a collection of photographs that exhibit her keen eye and knack for composition, but it is her self-portrait that we talked about earlier that is most revealing. In choosing to keep her face completely hidden under a large hat, Clover's portrait potentially suggests a struggle with self-acceptance. Clover, through the years, became vulnerable as her identity was challenged by her husband's expectation of exceptionalism. 
Everything started to go south for Clover when her father died, as I've said. Um, Clover sunk into a depression so profound she was rendered an invalid. Clover found an escape through her photography. Unfortunately, it was not in capturing photographs. As winter settled on Washington, so too did sorrow and solitude on Clover Adams. An old friend came calling on the morning of December 6, 1885. When Henry went to her quarters to see if she was willing to receive company, he found his wife unconscious and prostrate on the bedroom floor. Henry ran frantically to collect Dr. C.E. Hagner, who lived two blocks down on H Street, and when the pair returned, they found Clover dead. Local newspapers, including the Washington Post and Evening Star, reported that her death was the result of paralysis of the heart. Clover was supposedly no more than a victim of death's sudden summons, as far as the public would immediately understand. Considering she was such a prominent figure in Washington, as far as the public would immediately, oh, I'm sorry, it was important to protect her reputation. But on that December morning, deep in the unfinished Hay Adams house, Clover died by suicide by drinking potassium cyanide, a chemical she used to develop her photographs. Henry was destroyed by Clover's death, and later, after the death of his father, shortly after Clover, said, During the last 18 months, I have not had the good luck to attend my own funeral, but with that exception, I have buried pretty nearly everything I lived for. Curiously, Henry Adams completely omitted Clover from his autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams. His silence was notorious, especially since he went so far as to burn all of Clover's correspondence, including the letters she received from her father, and refused to discuss her after her death. Despite his reclusiveness, Henry did commission a statue to honor his wife, appropriately entitled Grief. Uh, the sculpture features a cloaked bronze figure to mark Clover's otherwise anonymous grave in the Rock Creek Cemetery. While the memorial does not depict Clover's likeness, the anonymous figure represents, per Henry's request, the depth of sadness conjured by his wife's death and the abstract cycle of life and death. Henry was buried with his wife upon his death, March 27, 1918. It seems that Clover, perhaps anchored by her husband's grief or her refusal to be erased, has a hand in her remembrance. Every December, around the anniversary of her death, the fourth floor of the Hay Adams Hotel reeks of Clover's memory, literally. Guests report catching the scent of bitter almonds or the smell of potassium cyanide wafting through the hotel's halls. Her distant sobs echo in empty rooms, a reminder of the woman who will likely never check out of the Hay Adams Hotel. So... We're going to go check out both of these sculptures now, and then we will, uh, I don't know, we'll tell you what we think. Um, yeah, uh, very exciting. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we are on our way to see the Black Aggie statue in Washington, D.C. Um, Ryan is driving us. Say hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Uh, and here's Matthew. Ryan is now working for Lyft, but he has not been employed yet. He's just practicing. Got it. Um, I just learned that terrific it came comes from also the word terrifying. So I'm, I'm going to say driving here today is terrific. Great. Um, all right, so we'll touch base with you once we get there. We're crossing the Potomac River on the 14th Street Bridge right now, 
and we will be at the Black Aggie very soon. I'm getting nervous. Bye. Okay, we are at the Rock Creek uh, Memorial Cemetery. Clara Adams Memorial. Clara Adams Memorial. And we are standing in front of the Clover Adams, the Adams Memorial. Um, this was uh, the statue commissioned when Clover Adams uh, committed suicide. Um, and in her home, which is now the Hay Adams Hotel, uh, which she allegedly haunts. Hey, Adams. Yeah. Um, and just sitting here in front of the statue is pretty powerful. The eyes are very prominent. Um, it's kind of an androgynous figure that's... Uh, yeah. The body is very still and almost meditative, and the fabric is in motion. Yeah, um, I can see why people get so disturbed by this. This isn't even technically the black Aggie, right? This is uh, this is the real figure. Um, it's very unnerving. It's in a little portico kind of area that's blocked off. Um, it's the perfect place to come with a picnic. Let's go up here so Ryan can get a picture of us talking to the black... Well, this isn't the black Aggie. This is the Clover Adams Memorial. Hello there, statue. You are quite spooky. So, so this is the one that was like, uh, a, you know, stolen. The, the art itself was stolen. They made a whole other counterfeit one that we're going to go to next, right? Yes, okay. that's correct. This is the real deal. It is very, very uh, interesting looking and spooky and hypnotic. The eyes. Looks like somebody's almost etched the eyes or I don't know. It's just a reflection. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put this little black and silver rock at his feet. Okay. Okay, you do that. Hello. All right. Um, so this is it. Uh, it's, it's Ryan navigated all of this, found it um, yeah. for us. It's, it should be easy for you to find uh but now we're going to the jekyll to this hide we're going to the black aggie next all right we'll be right back right back all right we are we're on our way from the adams memorial to the black aggie um so we can see the copy of the uh clover adams memorial um that was interesting to see um and yeah what what was your takeaway matthew i thought it was beautiful i mean i've always loved sort of like going into cemeteries and honoring those who have passed or even statues that are there for bodies that aren't but it was kind of um, beautiful i loved the shrubs around it and it was a great place to sit and hang out um yeah it was kind of cool and a little creepy yeah, when I first came in, I was the first one to find it, and I came in through the thing because there's shrubs up all around it. I kind of got creeped out because it was like out of the corner of my left eye. But it is definitely something worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now uh, the trickier part. We're go we're headed kind of towards the White House, about a block from the White House, um, to find the Black Aggie. So we will be right back with the Black Aggie. Okay, we found it. We are here at the Black Aggie. Um, it's so interesting. It's called the Black Aggie because it is made of a black material. It's it uh, looks like the evil twin to the uh, 
other statue we just saw. Um, and yet for some reason it doesn't feel as creepy as the last one to me. It is covered in spider webs. That's kind of weird. The pedestal is that it's not nearly as ornate, but yet it's still it's still rather beautiful. Yeah, I don't get unsettled looking at this one. Maybe I should. This is the one that bad stuff's related to, but it doesn't seem as a uh, as much bad energy as the last one did. Um, it's very interesting, though. It's a beautiful statue. There's a little descriptor there. I'm going to have to take a picture of that. Um, what? It says Edward L.A. Posh after Augustus St. Gowden's Agnes Memorial after the Adams Memorial uh, 1906 to 1907. Transfer to the United States General Services Administration, 1987, from National Museum of American Art, Smithsonian Institution. Gift of Mrs. Felix Agnes Lesser. Um, she didn't want it. Nobody seems to want this one. They kind of give it away. Um, I can imagine seeing this at night would be kind of a creepy thing. Yeah. There's um, no lights back here, are there? Well, there are. There's that. Yeah, this one right here. Um, but okay, well oh. that was that was kind of relatively again easy to get to. So that's the Black Aggie. Oh, cool. So uh, fun fact: because of COVID, the courtyard in that court building is um, restricted. We just got busted. We just got kicked out. Um, so we'll talk about it in a second when we get back to the car. And we're on the way home. Uh, yeah, so it is. Uh, not recommended that you go visit the Black Aggie currently during COVID because the area that it's in is restricted. The guy was really nice about it. Matt pointed at his shirt and said, uh, yeah, we're the Connor and Smith show. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, me and my friend, we're thinking about starting a podcast. And we're, we think we should do the same thing because we're always talking. Isn't everyone. Um, so we could have easily have not visited that second one because you're not supposed to. So we're not allowed to encourage anyone to do what we just did. Only, only because of COVID. After COVID, hopefully, you know, you'd be able to go visit. But right now, no. Uh, what were you guys' impressions of the second statue? Now, this is supposed to be the evil one. Um, maybe it's because we were talking about it was a mock-up. Um, it was, you know... A copy. I didn't feel as powerful yeah. energy from it. Um, what did you guys think? I, I would agree with that. Was it smaller? Yeah. It Much did, smaller. It did feel smaller, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe because it's 2 o'clock, it's really hot out, it feels more like beach weather. I really didn't find, and because the second one, the Black Aggie, is sort of like in front of a courthouse, it didn't really give off any eerie vibes, but I think it would maybe after one kosh and like the sun goes down. Right, right. That's true. I guess the, the first one, automatically you feel creepier because you're in a cemetery. I mean, this does feel like we're just around the corner from Ollie's trolley, you know, which, you know, we are. Uh, so it didn't feel, I guess the, if the settings were different, if it was somewhere else, maybe it would feel differently um the plaza that it's in is very like nice so they're like you know cafe tables someone was like working on a laptop it feels very corporate um so i guess location 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 atmosphere is everything um 
it. But those are the, that's the Black Aggie, and we're on our way home, and we'll talk to you when we get there. We'll be right back. We're black. <laughs> We're back from the Black Aggie. Sorry. We're back from the Black Aggie. And, and grief. And grief. Grief is different than the Black Aggie. I was wrong. I think I get, got confused because whenever you see the Black Aggie, I always thought it was the bigger statue grief because that seemed like it was the one. But it's not. It's the ripoff, knockoff, beautiful, but it's... but. Black Aggie is definitely smaller, and when you cut the corner to see Grief, you actually are a little bit sort of um, overwhelmed. Overwhelmed because you're you're the, the the actual figure is probably like a body and another half. It's, it's not, bigger than a human. It's bigger than a human. I I don't find, and I know that there are stories and lore with Black Aggie, and if it was in a cemetery at night, and it's it it could be scary to see, because like I said earlier, it's in the city. I just and I also don't see why any paranormal supernatural energy would cling to a mock-up um, sculpture. It does seem like nobody wanted it. People kept giving it away, and I don't know if that kind of energy is what causes people to feel. But I didn't get that from the Black Aggie. I got that from grief, and I I felt very unsettled when we were in that little area with grief, the statue. I kind of wanted to leave. It was it there's something about it because the shrubs are all around there's a bench where you sit and look at it and it looks back at you and it's just kind of like you have to deal with it which is kind of the point yeah Yeah. um well whoever did the statue i think it was someone with a french name yeah he's mentioned a lot um pretty pretty amazing i mean i'm not a sculpture person expert of anything but i mean pretty uh, impressive work with just a, a human form basically shrouded in fabric. It's just very gorgeous. You cannot, you you kind of don't want to stop looking at it, but yet you know that you probably it's shouldn't. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's bigger. Um, it um, it's really it's really something. It's almost so beautiful and so terrifying at the same time, which I find a lot of cemeteries artwork and sculptures to be but something very um yeah it was very impressive it's the most famous um funerary statue in america um and i will tell you if you plan on going of course because of covid as we said you can't go to the black aggie so you know i would advocate going to this over the black aggie though this is easier to get to you can park along the you know the cemetery has a little driving places you can just kind of pull off um, it is in the east section and I believe section one. You have to, you can't see it. You have to look for an area that's encroached by uh, shrubs, basically. It's encircled, I think is the word I was looking for, by shrubs. Yeah. Um, it's like its own little private room in the cemetery. Yeah, it really hits you when you walk in. You're like, woof, there it is. Okay, so. Uh, Anyway, if you want to know more about us, uh, visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. Find us on Facebook under Connor and Smith. 
please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast. It really helps us out a lot. We really appreciate it. Um, And uh, as we always say, never stop Stop questioning. questioning. Bye, everybody.